Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's Labor Day, so we're talking about work. And I hope that this will be an encouraging, it's not Labor Day, but it's Labor Day weekend. I hope this will be an encouraging message for you, and uh, I hope that we can all leave, leave uh, more, more uh, passionate about our work, I guess, or at least more invested in it. So let's pray as we start. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us and uh, that you've created us. Thank you that you've created us to do good work here on this earth. I ask that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our, our minds and our ears to you now and that uh, I ask that you would speak to us. Amen. I finished my Masters of Divinity in 2014 up at Regent College in Vancouver, BC. And when I finished, I, I was very excited about what I'd learned. I was inflamed with love for God, and I was excited to apply what all, I, all that I had learned to pastoral ministry. And I was so excited about what I had learned that I was applying to uh, an, an additional time in school, another degree program. And so that meant that I had a year in between finishing up my MDiv and starting my, my next venture. And so I needed a job, and I wanted to do something past, with, in pastoral ministry so that I could use these gifts that I've been working to develop so I could apply this knowledge that I had learned. So I started applying, but there's not a lot of positions for one-year pastor situations. Um, so I was having trouble. I'm applying to lots of stuff, not getting much in the way of interviews, um, a couple of interviews that didn't work out well. Finally, I apply to a job, I get an interview, I go in, and it's, it's just surprising how easily... The interview goes, it goes really well, and they offer me the job on the spot, and I take the job as a valet, <laughs> which was not what I was planning. But there's nothing else, and I needed a job, so I took this job as a valet. And not only was I a valet, but I was a mobile valet. And a mobile valet is, uh, we had an app, and you drive into work, and you drop a pin, and I'm somewhere lurking around the streets of South Lake Union. And so wherever you drop a pin in front of your work, I'll run to where you are. I'll meet you there. I'll take your car, park it. And then when you want it back, you drop another pin. I drive your car to the pin. I give you your car back. And then I go run off to the next customer. So um, in some ways, it was a good job. But I kind of had these thoughts that maybe I hadn't invested four years of my life studying at Regent College in order to be a mobile valet. I struggled with feeling like this work was pointless and a waste of time and I wasn't contributing to the kingdom or contributing as much as, as other work would have. I thought, is this really what I studied four years for so that I can run around in the dark and the cold and the rain with wet pants, working 50 hours a week with a crowded bus commute on either end and uh, coming home to a, a pregnant wife who's trying to raise our one-year-old son and going nuts. This wasn't what I had planned. And I felt like I was spinning my wheels, just surviving until I could get on with the important stuff in my life. So this is my, this is my attitude toward work. Contrast this with a guy named Brian that I met. It's not our youth pastor, different Brian. Um, he was a groomsman in a wedding that I was a part of. And we were all, I was a groomsman as well. We were all hanging out and he lived in Arizona, and he was, he, he was telling us about how he sells RVs for a living, and <clears throat> he was really good at it, and he, so he was making all this money, and the bride's parents had an RV that they were maybe thinking of selling, and so he's like, oh, I could sell it in, a, in a three days or something. It's just no problem. I'll sell it easy, and I've, I'm making all this money because I'm selling RVs, and I think Arizona sells a lot of RVs, so um, 
It's probably an easier market. But, but anyway, he's bragging about this big house that he has. It's the perfect bachelor pad. You guys should all come hang out, you know, and all this stuff. So he has a very different view of work than I had. His view was work is a way for me to make a lot of money so that I can be really cool and have a sweet house. And, uh, and the work itself doesn't matter. It's just a way to get some money. So um, the sermon today is don't be like Brian and don't be like me. Go in peace. No, I will talk for much longer. Um, <laughs> neither of us appreciated the value of what we were doing uh, in our work. I struggled with feeling like the work was beneath me. It wasn't really contributing to God's kingdom. Brian didn't even care about his work. He just wanted to have the money. God has a far different view of work than either Brian or I demonstrated. I'm going to see that from God's perspective, our work, what we actually do day in and day out, is part of his intentions for us at creation and part of how we image God in the world and how we participate in his care for his world. Now, the point of all this, the reason we're talking about this, is that I hope that you will leave encouraged that what you do every day for 40, 45, 50 hours a week, however many it is, is important and it's valuable and it's part of your vocation as a human created by God. <clears throat> the point of, uh, maybe some of you are going to realize that work is one of the few sorts of work that humans uh, ought to not participate in. So there are very few kinds of work that don't fulfill our human vocation. We'll talk about those later. Um, most of you, though, will not be in those kind of jobs. Some of you may realize that while your work is good, maybe it's not the best kind of work for you. And that happens. I think Nancy's given us a helpful, a helpful picture of that. She's been doing great work here at Bethany. It was the right thing for her to do for a season. But now she's moving on to, into something new that is going to fit her better for this time in her life. I hope most of you, though, will be encouraged to continue on in your work with increased care, with increased joy, with increased vigor. And to those of you who don't work at traditional jobs, maybe you're a student, maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, maybe you are unemployed, or maybe you're physically unable to, to have a traditional job. Maybe you're retired. Or maybe you made so much money early on in your career, more than you expected, that you don't need to work anymore. That's okay. There's a lot of kinds of work that we do in the world that, are not simply, that, uh, that don't result in a paycheck. There's many different kinds of work, and they're all part of our human vocation. So if you can't have a traditional job, think about how you do, what kind of work do you do. Are you doing housework? Are you um, praying for people? Are you making scarves so that uh, people who are cold, uh, homeless people who are cold, can have uh, something a little bit warmer around them during our winters? Um, what do you do and how does it contribute to the kingdom of God? There's all sorts of kinds of work we can do. If you're unemployed, again, what kind of work are you doing um, that doesn't count as a job? And secondly, there's, there's seasons in life. So you're probably gonna have a job later on and that's okay. We go through these seasons, we don't always have to be doing everything. For those of you who are retired or who don't need to work anymore, don't be afraid to rest. It's okay to rest. We're going to talk about how that is an important corollary to work. But also know that when you retire, you're not retiring from work, you're retiring from your job. And there's still lots of work to be done in your communities, in your families, in your churches, and wherever else you may be involved in your life. So, then let's dive into our text in Genesis. The first point, which you'll see written in your bulletin, is that God created us to work. We see this in Genesis 2.5. The author is talking about before God created the world, 
and how there was nothing existed. And, he's, and then he says, and there was no human to work the ground. This is an important phrase. It's important for us to notice that it assumes that humans work. Now, this is, uh, I, I spent a lot of money on seminary. And we learned some things that help us read a little better. But because I like you, I'm going to tell you this one for free. This probably cost me 20 bucks in tuition money, but it's free this morning. It's, it's not only important to realize what the text says or what it assumes, but also what it does not say or what it does not assume. So in this case, <clears throat> the text does not say, and there was no human to sit on the beach eating exotic fruits from the garden and drinking Mai Tais. Okay? Now, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but there are a lot of other things that this author could have written here, but the author chose to write that there was no human to work the ground. The author could have written, there were no humans to contemplate God's majesty, or there were no humans to enjoy constant leisure, or there were no humans to escape the cycle of birth and death, as the Buddhists might have said, or there were no humans to be slaves to the God, as the ancient Babylonians would have said. Or there were no humans to fight in wars, as maybe the Spartans would have said. So the, the author of Genesis wants to communicate that from the beginning, God intended humans to work. This is confirmed a few verses later on when God puts the human in the garden. He puts the human there to work it and to keep it. Um, so work, here again, we're seeing work. It's not for a life of total luxury. It's not for escaping the cycle of birth and death. It is to work that God has created us. Not only for work, but certainly for work. Earlier in the text, uh, when God creates humans, in, in chapter 1, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and all sorts of other animals. This is another kind of work. It's not the same kind of work we've just mentioned, but it is another kind of work that God intends for humans to do. Now, to me, this is significant because for a long time, I assumed that work came into the world with the fall or with sin. So I thought things like, Adam and Eve sinned, so I have to have a job. Otherwise, I'd be sitting in my beautiful old house in Magnolia on the bluff, eating grilled salmon that I didn't pay for, and doing whatever I felt like. Have you ever thought similar things? I felt that my work was an onerous necessity that I had to, do, to put up with in order to live, to pay rent, for food, for clothing. I felt that life was a transaction. If I agree to do a certain set of unpleasant things for 40 hours a week, and I'll be given money in exchange with which I can then live my real life, whatever leisure I can afford um, in my spare time, reading, hiking, playing guitar, spending time with my friends, having a fancy car, having a nice house, buying the best stuff for my kids, best private schools, whatever. Am I the only one that's thought this way? Genesis, however, shows us a very different picture we were actually created to work. Work was a part of God's good plan for humanity. It wasn't a stain on paradise, but work is actually, actually integral to paradise. When God confronted Adam with his sin and, he, and says, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, the work itself is not the punishment. The punishment is that work doesn't work right anymore. So, Weeds grow better than wheat. The ground tends to be too hard. There are huge rocks in your garden that, you, that stop your shovel every time you try to drive it into the dirt. I was just talking to a fellow here who's sifting through his garden, getting the rocks out of it so that he can actually plant some, some things. It would be sure nice if you came in and your garden was soft and you didn't have to do this, right? You write code, but your code doesn't work the way you intended. 
You discover a cure for a disease, but the insurance companies won't cover it. Uh, you have a clear vision for your company but, or for your team at work, but it keeps getting blocked by argumentative coworkers. You're all set for a big presentation at work, and then your kid gets a stomach flu the night before, you hardly sleep, and you botch the presentation. You design a brilliant electric guitar, uh, electric guitar, I'm looking at guitars here, uh, an electric car, or guitar, <laughs> and the plans are buried by a motor company that doesn't want to make electric cars. You've put, in, put a, a whole bunch of work into a PowerPoint presentation or, or uh, something like this at your job and your boss says, nah, no, nah, it's not right, I don't want to use it. Or they decide not to use it for some reason, it's wrong, whatever, you've got to do it over again. So work isn't the curse. The curse is work that doesn't work right. Now we can see this idea that work is the human task in God's good creation throughout the rest of Scripture. I'll just give a few representative examples here. God's promised blessings for Israel when they're moving into the promised land in Leviticus, which does have a couple of important things to say, so read it maybe twice in your life. Um, <clears throat> God says, if Israel follows him faithfully, I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. So they're still threshing, they're still sowing, they're still reaping. There's still work in this ideal society that God has for Israel. Ecclesiastes 9, 9 through 10, my paraphrase, enjoy your wife and your work because that's all you're going to get in this life. Isaiah 2, 2, in the famous vision of the mountain of the Lord, the nations are streaming to it. <clears throat> God says, in the latter days, they shall beat their swords into, do you know it? Plowshares, not lawn chairs, right? Plowshares imply work. They're plowing the ground still. Um, in the new heavens and the new earth, tells, Isaiah tells us, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So they're again working in the new heavens and the new earth. In the New Testament, Paul envisions work as a part of the, of the Christian's task on earth. He tells the Thessalonians, uh, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you. And in his second letter to them, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So work is a part of our human vocation throughout the Bible. And despite my erroneous assumptions that work only entered the world as a result of humanity's sin, this is not the case. Now, a quick side note here. We've mentioned a lot of agricultural work, and that's not because um, God only wants us to do agricultural work. That's because these Texts are written in agrarian societies, right? So that's the kind of work people are doing. There are many kinds of work that fulfill our human vocation. Now, not only were we created for work, but our work is part of the way that we image God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that humans were created in the image of God. But what does that mean? What is the image of God? There's been a lot of discussion about this through the centuries as we try to figure this out. And I think the reason that there's been so much confusion about it is because people have been thinking like an ancient Greek, or they've been thinking like a Roman, or they've been thinking like an American, and they have not been thinking like an ancient Near, e ancient Near Easterner, the people who wrote this text. Think about the Old Testament. What is the image of a God in the Old Testament? You know the commandments, right? Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, right? The image of a God is an idol. It's a little statue that they make. And in the ancient Near East, the way this worked is that people would make the image of the God 
out of clay or stone or wood, some, some elements of the earth. And strikingly, this is exactly what we see God do when he makes the human. He creates the human out of, most translations say, the dust of the ground. It could equally be translated the earth or the soil. Then the ancient Near Easterners would have a ceremony over the image of the God in which the God was believed to animate the image. And this is precisely what we see God do next with the human that he's created. He breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the human and animates the human so that it becomes a living being. The image after the ceremony was then placed in a temple and the God would, was believed to exercise his rule in the nation through this image in the temple. And God, after he creates his image, puts his image in the garden. And what are we tasked with doing but ruling over his creation, carrying out his rule in creation? And this is precisely why it is such a big deal that Israel not make images of gods and not make images of God because we are his images. It is through us, not through bits of clay or stone or wood, that God exercises his rule on the earth. And what this means is that you matter and your work matters and what you do matters. And this is why I get so frustrated by some of our good brothers and sisters in Christ who talk about humanity as if we're just worms and dirty sinners and only fit for the refuse heap. I don't think they could be more wrong. We are sinners, we must repent of our sin, and we need Christ's forgiveness. But before we are sinners, we're images of God. After we're sinners, we're images of God. And while we're sinners, we are images of God. And therefore, we are of inestimable value. That image of, the fact that we are images of God is not lost when sin enters the world. When God commands Noah and his family not to kill each other after the flood, in Genesis 9-6, the reason he gives is because people were made in the image of God. You don't kill something that, that represents me. We represent God. And this is, this is why it matters so much that we do live the way God intends us to live. Images of God ought to act like God, right? So we're images of God, and this is what we mean when we talk about the image of God in Scripture. How, then, is our work part of the way that we image God? Well, first of all, we see that God works. Uh, God is said to work at creation in Genesis. In, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, Genesis 2.2. Jesus also tells us that God works. In John 5, he's healed a guy on the Sabbath. People are persecuting him for it. And he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So God is working in the New Testament as well, and I think we can safely assume through today. Since God works, since we are images of God, and since God makes us to work, it is clear that our work is an important aspect of how we faithfully represent God to the world. You represent God to the world when you work. Not only by the way you treat your coworkers or the way you treat your bosses or your customers, but in the very work you do with your hands, with the very work you do with your mind or however it is that your particular work is done. So God works. Further, God models the, the work rest cycles that he, tells, he prescribes for humanity on his own work and rest cycles. God creates the world in seven days and on the seventh day God rests. And he rests from the work that he's done. And he, he sanctifies the seventh day. He makes it holy because he rested from his work of creation. 
This is the Sabbath. And then when God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath, he tells them to keep the Sabbath because God rested on the seventh day. So he's, he's created a work rest cycle for Israel. Their work, their rest, is to, represent, or is, to, is to mirror God's own work and rest. Now, not only does our work rest cycle uh, look like God's, but also we can notice through this that we are not made only for work. We're also made for rest. The biblical idea of work is a balanced one. So I'm not trying to, to make you slaves to yourselves or slaves to God to just work more than you're able to do. We're to work, we're also to rest. I found this to be true in my own life. There was a period where I, I felt it was, <clears throat> I had so much to do that I had to work more than I thought was healthy. And so um, I had a, what to me was a demanding schedule. It might have been a cinch for you, but it was hard for me. Um, I would get up at six every morning, try to have a quiet time, feed my kids breakfast, and then it was off to work. I would work all day. Then I would uh, come home, spend some time with the family while my wife Katie made dinner, and then we'd put the kids down, we'd clean up, and then it was back to work for me until about 11.30 p.m. I was able to do this for a while, but, uh, but not for very long. Eventually, I hit a wall, and I had to just, to just stop and dial things back. That said, rest is not the only thing that's good for me either. <clears throat> when I go on vacation, I need a vacation. Uh, my wife says it takes a, a couple of days for me to get in vacation mode. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's true. So then I get in vacation mode, and it's great, but only for a while. Because if, you, if you're in vacation for too long, you just start to get bored. If, if you've ever been unemployed for a long period of time and had not enough to do, you'll know what I'm talking about. Or if you think back to summer vacation when you were a kid, summer vacation is awesome in the beginning of summer vacation. And then toward the end... You're like fighting with your siblings all the time, and you definitely don't want school to start, but you're bored out of your mind and you don't know what to do. And so this is, I think, illustrates for us that we need both. We need work, we need rest. And God created us for both. So we've seen God creates us to work. We image God by our work. Now the question is, how do we live out our human vocation of work today? Well, Genesis, as I've said, talks a lot about agriculture, it was an agrarian society, but there are many different kinds of work that fulfill our human vocation. For example, um, we see uh, skilled workmen make all kinds of stuff for the tabernacle. They're building the tabernacle. They're building all the apparatus that they need for worship in the tabernacle. That's a lot of work. None of it's agricultural. Jo there's, we see carpenters in the Bible. We see tax collectors in the Bible. We see fishermen in the Bible. We see a woman who only sells purple goods. Apparently, that's a job. Uh, we see tent makers in the Bible. The work we are to be getting on with in fulfilling our human vocation is almost any kind of work. And we carry out God's task of uh, creating and ordering his world through our work. Some of us help carry out the task of ruling over God's world and subduing it or making sure it's the way God wants it to be. I think politicians are in this category if they're doing a good job at least. Law enforcement, people in the legal system, managers, supervisors of all kinds. Some of us help work the garden by producing abundance. So we have farmers and ranchers, of course, but there's also software engineers, cabinet makers, aeronautical engineers, riveters who assemble the airplanes, manufacturers of all kinds, and interior designers. The list could go on. Some of us help keep the earth and protect it or guard it. Emergency service workers, environmental scientists, activists, people working to develop greener alternatives for power, transportation, housing, and so on. Maybe the military would be in this category. But not every kind of work fits, right? And, and uh, 
basically the kinds that don't fit are things that if they're immoral, things that are abusive or illegal. So for example, I don't think I need to say this to any of you, but making pornography is not the sort of work that fulfills our human vocation, right? Similarly, being a hitman. We shouldn't be hitmans as Christians. Uh, scamming old folks over the phone. If any of you are doing that, stop. <laughs> but just about everything else fits in. Most of the time, when we think of work that doesn't seem Christian to us, that's because it's good work done badly. You know, the, the uh, investment scandals, there's nothing wrong with helping people invest their money. There's something wrong with doing it, cheating people when you say you're helping them invest their money. So most kinds of work fulfill our human vocation. But how then do we do our work in a way that fulfills that vocation faithfully? How are we to act as true images of God in our work? Now at this point we may naturally think of how we treat our coworkers, how we treat our bosses, and that's super important. I think we talk about that quite a bit at Bethany. But if you will, actually you don't have a choice. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on work itself. Talking about our relationships is super important, but we're going to talk about work itself this morning because I want you to see how important what you're actually doing is. Uh, so the first thing to know is that your work matters. When God created the world, he didn't do it for the money, he didn't do it for the accolades, and he definitely didn't do it because it would make his life easier. We, Lord knows we haven't made God's life easier, right? Um, rather, he did it because of the intrinsic value of the fruit of his work. Creating a beautiful living world is a good thing. Populating it with all kinds of plants and animals is a good thing. Creating some people in his image to care for his creation and to rule over his creation is a good thing. And that was reason enough for God to create. So the question is, do you believe that your work matters? Do you believe it enough to do it simply because the fruit of your labor is something good, something worth having, something worth doing or making? If not, why don't you believe that? Maybe you need to become more aware of the value of your work. Or maybe you're made to be doing some other kind of work. It's possible. Is there something that you do care more about that maybe you could be in a different job and, and believe in the, the, the importance of that work more? So know your work matters. Second, do your work well. When God did his work at creation, he saw that it was... Good. And, he, and then the last time, he, he creates seven, six days, and the last day, he saw that it was very good. God did his work really, really well. We can probably safely say perfectly. When you finish your work, can you say that it is very good? I'm not asking this to hound you or to put pressure on you in any way, but simply to get you to care about your work, to take pride in your work, and to do it as unto the Lord. I'm a guitar player. And, and so I really appreciate good guitar playing. One of my favorite guitar players is Mark Knopfler. Uh, Rolling Stone ranks him at 44 out of, the, uh, out of the top 100 guitar players in the world. I'd probably put him a little higher, but that's my own bias, I guess. Um, he was in a band for a while called Dire Straits. That's probably where he was most famous. And uh, had a, their, I think their biggest single is probably Sultans of Swing. You may have heard it on the radio or something. But to me, he's an example of someone who takes his work seriously and believes that it matters and really cares about his work. But after playing for decades, he, f he went into a guitar store and he found an archtop guitar. We've got a picture of these up here. Uh, these are beautiful guitars. They're made by a guy named John Monteleone. And he picked it up and the first thing he said when he played it was, I'm not worthy to play this guitar. I mean, it was just incomparable. It's a work of art to look at. 
it was, it played so nicely, nicer than any guitar he'd felt before, and the sound was matchless. So like just everything was, the, everything was right about this guitar. And he ended up having John Monteleone build him his own guitar, and so he apparently got over his sense of unworthiness. Uh, <laughs> And he talks about how during the process of building this guitar, he would get periodic updates from John Monteleone about this guitar and how, how it was progressing and all that sort of thing. And, and he would sign his emails with these phrases like the chisels are, chisels are calling or it's time to make sawdust. And this spoke to Mark Knopfler in such a deep way that he actually wrote a song about this. And he said, look, you know, uh, the song is just about how he's, he's so impressed with how much John Monteleone cares about his work and how deeply he invests himself in his work. This guy believes that his work matters, and it matters so much that when he's making the guitar, he doesn't just grab a piece of wood. You can't use any kind of wood for a guitar. You've got to use the right kind. So Sitka spruce is a common kind of wood for the front of a guitar, but not all pieces are created equal. So he'll pick up the piece of wood, and he'll knock on it, and he'll listen. And you can hear the tonal resonance in the wood even before you make it into a guitar. And so he picks only the best kinds of wood. He book matches the wood. So you take a thick piece and you cut it in half and then you fold it out like this. So that then you've got a symmetrical grain pattern. It looks more beautiful on the front of your guitar. It matters that he ensures his chisels are perfectly sharpened. And it matters if he doesn't shape the top of the guitar just perfectly. It all contributes to a guitar surpassing all other guitars. John really believes that his work matters, and he does it really, really well. What if you believed in your work, whatever work you do, as much as John Monteleone believes in his? What if you strove for excellence in your work in this way? Could you sign your emails like him? The ledgers are calling. Time to saute garlic. My employers are calling, or my employees are calling. Time to clean teeth, the patients are calling, the students are calling, and so on. Our jobs might not be as idyllic as making one-of-a-kind guitars, but I will tell you, that work is not nearly as idyllic in reality as it seems over the internet. But whatever we do, our jobs are just as important. What if your trash collector didn't come around? What if Apple didn't care how well their phones work? worked and, the, and sold shoddy products? What if Amazon is only 80% reliable? You say, well, I ordered it, but I don't know if it's coming. We'll find out in a few days. Your work matters, and it's valuable, and it's worth putting your heart into it. So your work matters, but we also have to do our work in a way that's going to please God. For example, I have a friend. Uh, this is while I was a, a valet. He sold cars. He insisted on selling cars ethically. And so he wouldn't push the customers to buy stuff they didn't want. He wouldn't push them to spend more than they could. Um, he eventually had to, to quit the business because he was pressured to, to be more aggressive in his sales. But I wonder, what would, what would happen if more salespeople were like Alan? Would you enjoy buying cars more? And what does it mean to do your work in a way that pleases God? Paul encourages the, this, some of the Ephesian slaves he says to them, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What if we approached our work that way? We're working for Christ. We're not working for our bosses. We're not working for anyone else. We're working for Christ and we're doing our work in a way that pleases him. In what ways are you pushed to do things in an ungodly way? Are you asked to neglect your family for your work? 
Would it be possible for you to be devoted to your work and also be devoted to your family? Are you asked to fudge the numbers a little for your company? What would result if you were ruthlessly honest in the way you did your calculations? Are you asked to cut corners or build with cheaper materials? How would the industry change if you insisted on using the right materials for your job? I can't think of all the possibilities here. This is for you to do. But ask the question, what does it mean to do your job? What does it mean to do my job in a way that is pleasing to God? In the church, we often talk a lot about calling. What am I called to do or called to be? And I think these are good questions, but sometimes they arise from a sense that we as Christians, uh, there must be something more important for us to do than just go to work every day. And although there are many other important things for us to do as Christians, I hope you can see that going to work is doing something very significant. You are fulfilling one of the purposes for which you are created. You are reflecting the image of God. You are participating in God's care for and governance of his creation. Now, the book of Revelation does something special, and we're not going to talk about it much. Um, and there's a few things you've got to know to read Revelation well. It's kind of a weird book. But one of the things it does is it's a genre called apocalyptic. And what apocalyptic does is it pulls back the veil so you can see the heavenly realities behind earthly events. So these guys to whom the revelation was written, they're struggling, they're Christians in a world that doesn't, is not friendly to Christianity, and it's hard. And John says, look, God is on the throne, and the lamb is with him. The lamb who, lamb who has been slain is with him. And the 24 elders are there bowing before him. God is in control, and you can trust him. That's one of the things Revelation does. And Genesis does something very similar with our view of work. It pulls back the veil so that we can say, look, what we're doing is important. I mean, I know that you feel tired at work. I know it can be tedious, and I know it can be stressful. I know it seems absolutely normal in the worst sense of the word. But Genesis allows us to see the other side of our work. There's much more going on than simply answering another email, drawing plans for another commercial bathroom, changing another diaper, mopping another floor. You are participating in the great work, capital G, capital W, the work of ruling and ordering and tending God's good world as his images through which he rules. So keep up the good work. And may you be able to say of your work when you finish, it is very good.